Tales of shapeshifters go back many moons in human history, and wolves seem to be especially in the spotlight. When people get accused of being a shapeshifter, they find themselves often in serious trouble. And once in a blue moon, someone claims that they actually are a werewolf. This is often a mental disorder known as clinical lycanthropy. And then there are those today who think they really are part animal in some way, or part unicorn, or part alien, or part hobbit, and they like to talk to one another on the internet. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Werewolf! Werewolf! Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast, and if you like what we do, donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. German state of North Rhine-Westphalia, just west of the Rhine between Cologne and Dusseldorf, there lies the town of Bedburg. Sometime in the 1560s, people in the area started finding the bodies of mutilated cattle and other livestock in the fields, seemingly torn apart by a wild animal. Then people started disappearing, only to be found much later in much the same state, torn apart with bits of them missing. Thinking it was perhaps a large wolf, townsfolk went hunting for the beast. At some point, it was spotted, and a hunter managed to cut off its left forepaw, but the animal escaped, and the killings continued. Then in 1589, a pack of hunter's dogs cornered the wolf, recognizable from its missing paw. As the men approached, they were shocked to see it was not a wolf at all, but a man. A man missing his left hand. He is identified in records as Peter Stump, or perhaps Stuba which means Peter Stump, probably a reference to the missing hand, though he had also used the name Abio Griswold in the past. He'd been born in the nearby village of Eprath, about a mile northwest of Bedburg, and had become a wealthy farmer. As was the practice at the time, they stretched him out on the rack to torture a confession out of him, but before they could begin their proceedings, he told them everything, that he'd made a deal with the devil when he was 12 years old and received a magic belt that allowed him to turn into a wolf, For the past 25 years, he'd been killing and feasting on goats, sheep, and cows before moving on to people. He'd killed 14 children, including his old son, whose brain he had eaten. He also killed two pregnant women, ripping their babies from them, eating the babies' hearts, which he called dainty morsels. 
After his wife had died, he'd started up an incestuous relationship with his daughter, now 15 years old, and he'd also been having sexual relations with another relative and a succubus that the devil had sent him as a reward for all of his bad deeds. Monstrous stuff. So, he was sentenced to die, and since incest was illegal, his mistress, also his relative, Catherine, as well as his daughter, were also sentenced to death. The women were flayed and strangled in front of Peter, and then he was put on the wheel and hot pincers tore the flesh off of him. His arms and legs were pulverized with a hammer, and then he was decapitated. All three bodies were then burned. As a warning to others, they put a pole up in the center of town and hung the torture wheel and a figure of a wolf from it while placing Stump's head on top of the effigy. The authorities, incidentally, also got to confiscate all of his money and his land. Is this one of the first recorded instances of a serial killer in Europe? Or was this the chilling account of a real-life werewolf? Downward Facing Dog The idea of people being able to change their form into a wolf is a very old one, going all the way back to the Epic of Gilgamesh, written between 2100 and 1200 BCE. The Greek historian Herodotus recounts in 425 BCE the tale of a nomadic Scythian tribe he calls the Neiru, who could turn into wolves on certain days of the year. Scythia was north of the Black Sea in modern-day Russia, and it was not unusual for people here to use animal skins for warmth, including wolf skins. In the 2nd century BCE, the Greek geographer Pausanias tells the story of King Lycaon of Arcadia, a region in Greece on the Peloponnese Peninsula where they worshipped the nature god Pan, who was half man and half goat, and Zeus in the form of Zeus Lycaeus, or Zeus the Wolf. Lycaon wanted to see if Zeus really was so all-knowing as it was claimed by the priests, so instead of sacrificing and burning an animal on the altar one day, he sacrificed a human child to see if Zeus would tell the difference. Of course, Zeus did, and turned Lycaon into a wolf as punishment. A local man named Darmarcus had tasted the cooked flesh of the child and was also turned into a wolf, though in his case only for 10 years, if, during that time, he could refrain from eating human flesh. He was successful, and after a decade got his human form back, going on to become a famous boxing champion at the Olympics. But King Lycaon was a wolf forever, and it is from his name that we get the word lycanthropy, which originally meant back in the 1580s when it was coined a mental disorder in which a person thought they were a wolf, but in the 1830s it also got attached to people who supposedly could also physically transform into the animal. The word werewolf, literally wolf-man, had been around for ages as a person who transforms in a similar fashion. Legends grew and grew, and there are many variants, including some who turn into a hybrid man-wolf, kind of like Lon Chaney Jr., and some who can turn full wolf. While wolf is certainly the animal of choice for lycanthropes in most European traditions, there are plenty of other animals out there in the world. All through Europe, Asia, Africa, and the Americas, there have been tales of werecats, in the northeastern Indian province of Manipur, there have long been stories of the Kelbu Kaoba, who is a human during the day, but at night becomes a tiger. In various lands, there are also were-boars, were-rats, were-bats, were-moles, were-sharks, were-bears, were-snakes, were-vultures, were-owls, and were-spiders. In his 1997 novel, Mason and Dixon, Thomas Pynchon writes of a were-beaver, though he's probably just being funny. 
Central American folklore has had much talk of the Nagual, people who can shapeshift into an animal they have a particular resonance with, or sometimes into several different types of animals. Further north, the Navajo people have the legend of the Skinwalker, an evil witch or sorcerer who can turn into an animal. Interestingly, this echoes an old Roman term for the same phenomenon, which was turnskin. In Japan, it goes the other way. The kitsune are supernatural foxes that have up to nine tails and who can turn into humans in order to cause mischief. Likewise, both the Scots and the Irish have legends of the Selkies, who are water-dwelling seals that can sometimes transform into human shape and come up on land. As far back as the first century CE, and very probably before that, there have been records of the fierce Nordic warriors known as the Berserkers, a word that means bear, bear, and shirt, serk. Obviously, records from that time are scanty, but it's thought that there were three main animal clans, bear, wolf, and boar, and these fighters grew out of old shamanistic hunting magic rituals. They would wear the target animal's skin and perform rituals in which they would take on, so to speak, the qualities of that animal, actually running around on all fours and growling. In the 10th century, the Byzantine Emperor Constantine VII, fourth of the Macedonian line, writes of rituals performed by his Varangian guard, which was made up of Scandinavians and Anglo-Saxons, that involved wearing animal skins. Other Northern European groups were also said to have special warriors who would go berserk and become something almost superhuman, such as the Celtic-Germanic Teutons. During battle, the berserkers would growl or howl, foam at the mouth, and chew on anything nearby, especially their shields. Legend said that when they were in their frenzy, fire and steel and sometimes iron could not harm them. The term for this was Hamask literally meaning to change form, and it seemed that at least some chroniclers thought the shift was physical. Their faces would swell up, it was said, and their heads would become hot. They were certainly terrifying to their enemies as all semblance of humanity, and thus what one might consider the rules of civilized combat were absent in their changed state. When in their frenzy, they would attack any and all in their path indiscriminately. If you saw a berserker coming, best get out the way. Some scholars think a type of hallucinogenic mushroom may have played a part in the berserkers' quote-unquote transformation, or maybe it was just a lot of alcohol, or both. There's a thing called hysterical strength in which the body produces an abundance of adrenaline, allowing the person to perform feats of strength unthinkable otherwise. The modern cliché is the panicked mother who lifts a crashed car to save her child. A trope that first comes about from a 1962 account by comic book artist Jack Kirby, and which, he says was his inspiration for his Marvel Comics character, the Hulk. Afterwards, a person who experiences such an adrenal rush would fall into something like a stupor, and this was often reported to happen to post-frenzy berserkers as well. For those who thought shape-shifting physically happened, opinions varied as to the cause. Sometimes it was a natural ability, sometimes the result of a spirit or demon inhabiting the person's body, sometimes brought about on purpose with magic or with special herbs. St. Augustine thought some witches could turn men into wolves using plants and spells. And sometimes it's an object like Peter Stump's magic belt given to him by Satan. And it wasn't just uneducated villagers who believed in were-creatures. In the 10th century CE, there are accounts that Bayan, son of the Bulgarian king Simeon I, could transform into a wolf. King Canute of England writes of werewolves in his 11th century ecclesiastical ordinances. 
In Ireland, there are even older tales of an entire kingdom and royal line there of werewolves, Osraiga or Ossery, in what today is known as County Kilkenny. These were descendants of the great hero, Lynoch Faelid. These werewolves of Ossery appear in chronicles and poems into the 16th century. Some researchers today think that these people may have had a very sort of close-to-nature hunting culture, staying in the wild for long periods of time, and also might have performed a sort of ritual transformation, putting on wolf skins and growling and so on, so as to channel that animal's fierce energies and hunting skills. These are also supposedly the people who bred the Irish wolfhounds to deal with the constant menace of wolves on the island. Today, Ireland has no wolves at all, so the wolfhounds must have been pretty effective. It's a dog-eat-dog world! While Ireland may have once had werewolf royals, on the continent werewolves were seen as a problem. Starting in 1428, the Swiss went hard after witches and included werewolves and other shapeshifters in their persecutions. They enacted the Valais Witch Trials, the first coordinated witch hunt in Europe, which then spread to other lands for the next 500 years. The case of Peter Stump really got the attention of church and legal authorities in German and French-speaking lands. Just two years later, there was an account from the town of Jülich, also in North Rhine-Westphalia, west of Cologne, not far from Aachen and the border with the Netherlands. Supposedly, a pack of 300 werewolves terrorized the town, killing cattle and young boys. Mass trials were held and 85 people, mainly women, were burnt at the stake on May 6, 1591. During witch trials in the Netherlands between 1591 and 1595, a whole family confessed to being werewolves and werecats who'd gained the power through a deal with Satan. This confession came after torture, mind you. They were all executed except for the two youngest boys who were just whipped severely. Nine years before Stump, a man was found guilty in Geneva, Switzerland of killing over 16 children. And in his defense, he claimed that he had been turned into a wolf and couldn't help himself. Maybe the first written account that has what we might call a scent of authority comes from the town of Poligny in France in the commune of Jura. In 1521, a traveler was attacked on the road by a large wolf. He fought it off, wounding it in a foreleg, and followed its trail of blood to a house where he found a woman cleaning a fresh wound on her husband's arm. The traveler went to the police, who came and questioned the man, Michel Verdun. Michel Verdun admitted he was a werewolf and also fingered other men in the town, Pierre Bourgeot and Philippe Monton, as being fellow shapeshifters. Verdun and Bargot both confessed to be wolves and committing a number of crimes, including killing a nine-year-old girl. Verdun said he'd been given this ability by a strange man dressed all in black. Bourgot said that Verdun had given him an ointment that allowed the transformation once he'd renounced his Christian baptism. All three men were found guilty and executed and their bodies burned, even though Manton maintained his innocence to the end. In Swedish Livonia, which is where parts of Estonia and Latvia are today, a man named Thies of Kaltenbrunn was called one day in 1691 to give testimony in court at Jürgensburg, which is the modern-day Latvian village of Zaba, because it was thought he'd seen somebody rob a church. The court knew that the townsfolk had been calling him a werewolf for decades, but this wasn't germane to the theft they were investigating, and besides, he was old, well into his 80s. But when he showed up in court, he suddenly confessed, unprompted, that he had in fact been a werewolf for many years. 
In fact, he was part of a large werewolf pack that would get together three times a year, transforming by putting on magic wolf pelts and going around killing and eating animals. They would then descend into hell and do battle with demons and witches and sometimes even the devil himself, for they were actually the hounds of God, and they would bring back livestock and grain that the witches had stolen and brought to their dark lord. If they ever failed, the harvest that year would also fail and the people would starve. So they considered this their sacred duty. However, due to his advancing age, he'd had to give up the practice 10 years earlier. Well, the authorities didn't really know what to make of this, but after further questioning, they figured out that he was not a good Lutheran like they all were and never really was seen to partake in proper Christian worship. In fact, he seemed he practiced some old pagan folk religion, blessing foods and creating charms that supposedly healed or kept wolves at bay. And one of his rituals involved blessing salt by saying the following, Sun and moon go over the sea, fetch back the soul that the devil had taken to hell, and give the cattle back life and health which was taken from them. And then he would sprinkle that salt into a warm beer. Well, this blessing, while seeming harmless enough on the surface, actually was a problem. Since it doesn't mention God at all, the authorities thought it could be an attempt to turn people away from the church and the true religion of Christianity. And that was illegal. So they flogged the octogenarian, known today as the Livonian werewolf, and banished him from the area for the rest of his life. Later historians would speculate that perhaps Tis was participating in a pre-Christian shamanistic ritual battle, similar to ones practiced by the Good Walkers, or Benedanti, in Frulli in the northeast of Italy, who claimed that they helped ensure a fruitful harvest by leaving their bodies on certain nights to go fight against witches. In 1685, the Free Imperial Principality of Ansbach, in today's Bavaria, but southwest of Nuremberg, saw numerous livestock torn apart, and then the same thing started happening to children. This would continue for 10 years. Locals thought it was their famously cruel magistrate, Michal Leicht, who had just recently died, returned from the dead to heap yet more suffering upon them. Some said they'd seen a large wolf come into his house one night, so it wasn't too much of a stretch to just assume that Leicht had become a werewolf. Hunting parties roamed the countryside looking for the monster, and wolf pits were dug with a live chicken in them as bait. One night, a large wolf fell into one of the pits. Trapped and howling, the locals stoned it to death. They then dragged the carcass up to ground level and skinned it. They put a mask over its face and dressed it in a wig and a cape and then hung this weird effigy from a gibbet built specifically for this up on Nuremberg Hill. This represented Leicht. Sometime later, the effigy was taken down and placed in the local museum. Sadly, the wolf effigy of Leicht seems to no longer be in the museum, but this is also the time where the mysterious boy Caspar Hauser died in 1833, and they do have a museum to him in this town. For more about Caspar Hauser, see a previous episode all about him. Barking, Barking up, up the wrong, wrong tree. tree! There is indeed a condition known today as clinical lycanthropy. Accounts go back in history, and modern researchers think they even see references to something similar in Homer's Odyssey, 4th century Armenian chronicles, and other ancient writings. It's very rare, and the afflicted don't always think they turn into a wolf. All sorts of animals have been claimed by sufferers, including transformation into frogs, snakes, or even bees. Bees. 
In the 11th century, Persian prince Maj ad Dawa suffered under the delusion that he was a cow. This is actually known as boanthropy, and some scholars think that biblical accounts of the Neo-Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II in the book of Daniel also describe this weird condition. The causes are unclear, though it might have something to do with damage to the parts of the brain that represent our own bodies, given further shape by cultural factors. It might be a very specific form of psychosis or schizophrenia or even clinical depression. Dementia could be another cause or factor as maybe brain injury, cardiovascular disease, and even drug addiction, both intoxication and withdrawal. The fact is, we don't really know. But we do know that every once in a while, somebody thinks that they have turned into an animal. In January 2014, Rajit Sretsa, writing in the Journal of Neuropsychiatry and Clinical Neurosciences, recounts the story of a 20-year-old man with no prior history of mental problems who was brought into a mental hospital because he was acting erratically. At first, he was shy and didn't want to talk, but a few days after arriving, he began walking around on all fours and howling. As he loosened up to his captors, he said that he'd seen the devil some years before and since then had been hearing voices and was now a werewolf, sometimes transforming as clearly they had seen him do. What they saw was a man walking around pretending to be a wolf, but he was convinced he had actually transformed into a wolf. He was given a drug that's used to treat schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and his dog mimicking behavior stopped. In the February 2021 issue of the journal Curious, a case study was published that told of a 25-year-old milkman who was sent to a facility for treatment for compulsive behavior, unable to sleep, constantly washing his hands and genitals, and behaving like a buffalo. He told medical professionals that he had had sex with a buffalo and believed that some of the buffalo cells had gotten into him, and then he started to notice parts of his body change into buffalo parts. He tried washing repeatedly to stop the infection, but it was too late and the transformation continued. Pretty soon, he would find himself walking about on all fours, nodding his head as if it was extremely heavy, and eating grass and hay when he could find it. He was found to have an unfortunate combination of obsessive compulsive disorder and body dysmorphic disorder. He was treated with Prozac and Respiradol plus psychotherapy, which reduced his symptoms. However, this can also sometimes manifest in more violent and horrible ways. In August 2016, 19-year-old Jupiter, Florida resident Austin Haruf went on a rampage in the nearby town of Tequista, stabbing John Stevens and Michelle Miskun in their home and then attacking neighbor Jeffrey Fisher when he came over to help the couple. Rather than flee the scene, Haruf then began to chew on John Stevens' face while growling. Police required the use of tasers and a police dog, but finally subdued him. Both Stevens and McCon died of their injuries. In the weeks before the attack, Haroff had told family members that he was half dog or maybe he was half horse. It would seem he settled on half dog before he went on his rampage. Police sent him for psychiatric evaluation and he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Their bark, their bark is worse, worse than their, than their bite. 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 Much as with Legends of Vampires talked about in a previous episode, there are some physical medical conditions that may have been mistaken for lycanthropy in the past. 
As with vampires, porphyria might be a culprit. People with this cannot produce enough heme in their blood, which is the part of hemoglobin that contains iron. Hemoglobin brings oxygen to the lungs and tissues. People with this are often sensitive to sunlight, have discolored skin, as well as a tightening of the skin, especially around their mouth, which reveals their incisors more. Their facial features may also deteriorate, and some have been known to grow excessive amounts of hair on their faces. Also, like with stories of vampires, rabies might be responsible. It can cause hallucinations and in extreme cases make people foam at the mouth and violently bite others. But the one that many people think might be directly tied to lycanthrope legends is hypertrichosis, often called werewolf syndrome. This is a genetic disorder that causes excessive hair growth all over the body, even the soles of the feet and the palms of the hands and even, in the case of the congenital terminal hypertrichosis variety, all over the face. Like, a lot of hair. We're talking cousin it from the Adams family levels here. This is often in concert with an inflammation and withdrawing of the gums, which also makes the teeth more pronounced. Or, in short, makes people look kind of wolfy. Many people who had this were shunned, and in the 19th and early 20th centuries, they might have found work in a circus sideshow. Think of Fedor Adrianovich. Yevtichu, better known as Jojo the Dog-Faced Boy, who was born in St. Petersburg, Imperial Russia in 1868 and, like his father, suffered from hypertrichosis. Together they toured circuses around Europe and when Fedor was 16 he joined Barnum's famous circus. Despite the silly tale that he and his father had been tracked by a hunter to a cave where they'd been living like animals, Fedor actually was quite cultured and spoke Russian, German, and English and made good money. He died in Thessaloniki, Greece in 1904 at the age of 36. However, this disorder had been around forever, and people with it were not always pushed to the margins of society. It kind of sort of depended on what class they were born into or who noticed them. Pedro Gonzalez was born in Tenerife in the Spanish Canary Islands in 1537 and somehow came to the attention of people at various European courts. When Pedro was 10 years old, Henry II of France found out about him. He liked the boy and gave him an aristocratic education. Gonzalez lived in France for many years through four separate French kings, and when he got older, he met a lady named Catherine, and the two fell in love, eventually marrying and having four daughters. After King Henry III was assassinated, they had to flee and found refuge in the Spanish Netherlands, which was being ruled with an iron fist by Margaret, Duchess of Parma. But she liked the family, so she said they could stay. The couple had three more children, bringing their total up to seven, four of whom also had their father's disorder. In 1594, Italian naturalist Ulisse Androvandi met one of the daughters who had the affliction, Antoinetta. He became fascinated with her and later the whole family. This further cemented their place in society and ensured their security. Pedro Gonzalez died near Rome in 1618, age 81, completely covered in hair. The Tale of Beauty and the Beast was written in 1740 by French novelist Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve, and while it is known from her own notes that one source of inspiration for her fairy tales was the Greek myth of Cupid and Psyche, she also drew on oral traditions and more. And many people think that the story of Pedro Gonzalez, or Petrus Gonzalves, as he was known in non-Spanish Europe, and Lady Catherine was also at least partly the inspiration for her timeless tale of love despite differences. <laughs> 
teaching an old dog new tricks. You probably noted that none of the preceding stories say anything about turning into a wolf at the full moon or being susceptible to silver or that you can contract lycanthropy from being bitten by a werewolf and surviving. These now classic tropes come to us almost entirely from fiction. Probably the first literary treatment of the werewolf theme was the 1834 Hugh the Werewolf by Sutherland Menzies, who also wrote histories of the Middle Ages and political women in European history. The next year, 1839, Royal Navy officer and novelist Frederick Marriott wrote The Phantom Ship, a novel about the mystery of the Flying Dutchman, but which also contained a story about a female werewolf. This part became so popular it was often reprinted all on its own with the title The White Wolf of the Hearts Mountains. In 1846, Catherine Crow wrote a story for the magazine Hogg's Weekly Instructor titled A Story of a Werewolf, thought to be the first werewolf tale written by a woman. Wagner the Werewolf by G.W.M. Reynolds, published in 1847, is about a kind man who makes a deal with the devil for money and youth and then is transformed into a ravening beast who goes along with Dr. Faustus causing mayhem. Even Alexander Dumas wrote his own called The Wolf Leader in 1857. Charles de Coster, the father of Belgian literature, wrote The Legend of Thiel Uhlenspiegel and Lama Goodzak in 1867 that contains an early form of murder mystery about a town terrorized by a werewolf on the hunt. Many think Robert Louis Stevenson's 1886 classic of gothic horror, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, very much also taps into the werewolf theme. An English female author, illustrator, and suffragette Clemence Hausman wrote her novel, The Werewolf, about a female werewolf who seduces men and then consumes them in 1896, just one year before Bram Stoker started the vampire craze with his novel, Dracula. In the 20th century, many werewolf stories were penned, notably by Algernon Blackwood. But it's the American Guy Endor's 1933 novel, The Werewolf of Paris, set during the Franco-Prussian War and the Paris Commune of 1870 and 71, that many considered to be the real starting point of werewolf mania, sort of a hirsute answer to Dracula, which had become something of a craze. Mr. Endor would later adapt it into the 1961 Hammer horror film, The Curse of the Werewolf. Film had also taken a shine to the idea of people turning into animals. In fact, while the first vampire film was the 1921 Hungarian silent work Dracula's Death, the first werewolf film was the 1913 short The Werewolf, directed by Canadian Henry McRae and written by American cinema pioneer Ruth Ann Baldwin, based on an 1898 short story by Henry Bogrand called The Werewolves. This was about a Navajo woman and her daughter who become wolves to exact revenge on those who have wronged them. This 1913 short film is only 18 minutes long, but it's still the first. Sadly, all known copies of it were destroyed in a fire at Universal Studios in 1924. So, coming in a bit longer at 67 minutes, the silent film Wolf Blood is the oldest surviving werewolf movie. But the first feature film was the 1935 Werewolf of London. 
Makeup artist Jack Pierce designed some truly great effects for the time, but actor Henry Hull refused to wear the makeup, saying it would take too long each day before shooting, and he also thought it made him look unattractive. <laughs> Actors. However, makeup artist Pierce would get his chance eight years later with George Wagner's 1941 The Wolfman. Lon Chaney Jr. had no problem donning the makeup, and so this is the one that's really considered the classic in the genre. This is also the first film to introduce the idea that werewolves are vulnerable to silver. Four sequels would follow, but then werewolf movies got rather consigned to the doghouse, if you will, while vampire movies continued to thrive, maybe because makeup for bloodsuckers is so much easier. But then John Landis started working on An American Werewolf in London with David Naughton, the Dr. Pepper guy, in the lead, and Rick Baker developed some truly innovative makeup effects. These were so spectacular that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences decided to create a new Oscar category, Best Makeup, to honor Baker's work. Previously, two films in the 60s, the 1964 The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau and the 1968 Planet of the Apes, had received special awards for makeup. But since they wanted this to be a new category rather than just a one-off achievement award, so to make it look like a real contest, they nominated the super mediocre comedy Heartbeeps, starring Andy Kaufman and Bernadette Peters with makeup by Stan Winston. And of course, American Werewolf in London won. Werewolves now were standard fare, seeming to compete with vampires for box office silver. The 2003 Kate Beckinsale vehicle Underworld, written by Danny McBride, pits the two classic monsters against each other in a centuries-long war, a trope Stephanie Meyer would obviously appropriate for her 2005 romantic novel Twilight, which was then made into a successful film in 2008. Both films would spawn franchises that, like so often happens, got worse and worse and worse with each installment. Puppy love. Just as with vampires, there are more than a few folks out there who claim to be, or at least like to pretend to be, werewolves. But while the vamp subculture has plenty of bars, clubs, and organizations, the werewolf thing seems to be sort of lagging behind. But when you extend out from just wolf to other animals, you will actually see that that subculture is quite large indeed. There are the Therians. Therians are people who claim that they are part human, but also part animal. How far that goes varies on the person. Some say they have an animal soul inside of them. Others say they have an animal brain or part of an animal brain or maybe just animal neural pathways. Anyway, their sense of self, their identity is not wholly human, but human plus some particular animal. A few Therians claim that they physically change into their animal when the conditions are right. This is known as P-shifting. There's also M-shifting, which is when the animal being hosted takes over the Therian's mind while the body remains outwardly human. And then there's pH-shifting, or phantom-shifting, when a Therian claims to feel something like phantom limb syndrome, but for an animal part, like they keep thinking they have big furry ears or a tail when they really don't. And there are also dream shifts, where a person's dreams become those of their animal, like running and hunting and hopping around eating grass or whatever. And there are auric shifts in which the person's astral body transforms into their animal form. Each of these course of shifts can occur when certain things trigger them, but much of the subculture is divided to finding ways to control these shifts, allowing Therians to transform at will. 
The YouTube channel Therian Nation has a couple of helpful videos for figuring out if you are one of them. They basically say that if you feel you're really part golden eagle, then you are. However, one must be careful of getting shifter's disease, which is when a person reads about therianthropy and then starts having some of the symptoms because that's within their heads. A bit like when you read about a disease and then start feeling the symptoms. You have to be careful and discern if the therian thoughts in your head are real or if you're just psyching yourself out. This all could be a form of body dysmorphic disorder, but with the somatoform being a different species, sometimes known as species dysphoria. It also might be a sign of affective schizophrenic disorder. Some researchers have found a correlation between therians and gender dysphoria. As such, perhaps it should be considered part of the growing category of neurodiversity, or at least so some argue. But how many people out there really believe to some extent or another, that they're part animal. In one online survey, 7% of people who identified as non-human, or at least not 100% human, said that they had felt species dysphoria. In another study, 7% of the general population in America said that they feel themselves to be or probably be, quote, less than 100% human. 7% that is more than 23 million people in the United States alone. And that is a lot of people. One of the several information sources out there for possible Therians is the website Wikifur, which covers Therian stuff, but also covers broader things in the fur world, like furries who are not the same thing. Furries are people who are into anthropomorphic characters from fiction, very often Japanese anime. Many argue it comes out of the underground comic book culture of the 1970s, though I would argue that Disney has at least something to do with people really liking animals walking around on two legs and talking. Heck, my very first crush in the whole wide world was Maid Marian in the 1973 film Robin Hood. She was a fox, literally, and grabbed my five-year-old heart. Now, I'm not a furry, but the point here is that we're all exposed to animals acting like humans. How many sports team mascots are animals that move around like people? The term furry came to be at a 1980 science fiction convention when fans got really excited by Albedo Anthropomorphics, a comic book of space-faring animals with human characteristics by Steve Galacci. By 1983, magazines had sprouted up devoted entirely to furry fandom. Today, the furry subculture is pretty diverse, and yes, some furries find the whole pretending to be an animal thing to be, uh, well, um, sexy. There's a whole world of furry porn and furry sex events, and they also cater to plushophiles, who are people who find themselves sexually aroused by plushy toys. But most fur folks are not in it for sexual reasons. Some just like to go to conventions dressed as anthropomorphic animals. One of the largest conventions, AnthroCon, which takes place in Pittsburgh, has over 5,000 attendees each year and in 2022 broke their record with 9,700. FurCon in San Jose, California had 4,600 attendees in 2022. And Midwest FurFest, which occurs in Rosemont, Illinois, just north of Chicago, happened in early December 2022 and claimed 13,500 people made it, meaning FurFest is the largest convention of its kind. These all bring in both plenty of money for the host cities, 
Anthrocon is responsible for at least $3 million added to the Pittsburgh economy, and so the powers that be don't really seem to have a big problem with it. They also raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for various charities. However, some fragile folks seem to be fearful of furries. Somebody attacked the Rosemont Hyatt in 2014 with concentrated chlorine powder, which required 18 FurFest attendees to go to the hospital. And there are still no suspects for this crime. Some furry costumes can be quite elaborate, and people who spend a lot of time and money making complicated fursuits, as they're known, and also their own plush animal dolls, are called plushies. Some like to role-play furry characters in in-person or online games, inhabiting what they call fursonas. There's recently been a huge outcry from right-wing culture warriors about children identifying as animals. A joke story appeared online that said some children at a school in Michigan identified as animals and were allowed to wear furry ears to class. And then, in the spirit of inclusivity, litter boxes were now provided to these little pups and kittens for them to use instead of human toilets. This was a joke built upon satirical tropes that existed in the furry community going all the way back to 2000. But then someone posted this joke article in late 2021 and a conservative activist from Midland, Michigan named Lisa Hansen completely fell for it, making a stink about litter boxes. Then in January 2022, co-chair for the Michigan GOP, Mashon Maddock, took the bait himself and freaked out about it on Facebook. School officials were asked about it and they said, no, of course not, that's silly. Then a Republican congressional candidate in Texas, Michelle Evans, said that cafeteria tables in a school district were being lowered to accommodate children who identified as animals and wanted to eat out of bowls closer to the floor. In February, conservatives accused Iowa's Carroll Community School District of installing litter boxes in classrooms. In March, a conservative declared Wisconsin's Wanaki School District had a, quote, furry protocol in place that, among other things, allowed animal-identifying children to skip P.E. and instead just sit in the corner and lick their paws. A school board member in Fargo, North Dakota named Jennifer Benson said she knew for a fact that litter boxes had been put in there, but then would not, or rather could not, provide evidence when asked for it. And then more litter box claims cropped up in Utah. Over the next few months, this litter box thing would spread around the country with more and more high-profile conservatives going on about it. People like Marjorie Taylor Greene, at a Trump rally no less, Lauren Boebert, candidates for governor, state senators, and more. Despite repeated refutations, the claims just kept piling up like kitty poop in an overused litter box all the way into November. Even Canada and Australia got infected with the idea. Now the question is, did these people actually believe this litter box story or were they using it to try yet another tactic in the ongoing war over transgender people and which toilets they can use or not use? It's hard to say, though probably at least a couple of these people fell for it and publicly melted down before actually checking the facts. For at least a few, it was almost certainly an attempt to tar a bunch of groups they don't like with the same furry brush. Many in the furry world are LGBTQ. A 2020 Gallup poll found that only somewhere between 28 and 51% of self-identified furries were plain old vanilla cis heteronormatives. So gay or trans equals furries equals kids pooping in litter boxes. This seemed to be the associations conservatives were trying to make in their voters' minds. 
The good news is that apart from Marjorie Taylor Greene, every conservative running for office who heavily promoted the litter box story lost their elections. It seems that the public isn't as stupid as those who want to lead them seem to think they are. Real news sources figured out the whole thing had been pretty much a successful trolling on conservatives and dubbed the whole thing Furrygate. Back to the Therians, who believe that they actually are at least part animal. They are part of a larger subculture known as the Otherkin. Otherkin are people who say they are not 100% human, but the non-human part might be anything. Dragon, fairy, alien, goblin, hobbit, characters from mythology and fiction. People who identify with fictional characters are known as fiction kin. Some say they could be changelings. Others have more complicated reasonings behind their half-humanness. This is mainly an online thing and grew out of mailing lists and news groups in the 1990s. The earliest ones were people saying that they were part elf or dragon or werewolf. Some say they are critted kin, which means their non-human part is itself a hybrid. So like I'm half human, but then the other half is a combination of werewolf and were-raccoon. There are even some other kin who think they are part Bigfoot or Jersey Devil or Loch Ness Monster, and a few claim to have special powers like telepathy. Cultural commentators have described the Otherkin movement as one of the most bizarre subcultures on the web. Some even find in it the trappings of a quasi or nascent religion. Adherents are certainly not fans of the normal world, and they find the community they have online with other Otherkins to fulfill a deep need. Many of them report a feeling of body dysphoria of some kind or another, and there is a widespread belief in shifting phantom limb syndrome and other things that Therians think. Therians are just the other kin who think that they're part animal. It should be noted that furries are not other kin, though a few furries may pad around in both worlds. Furries are just mainly fans of this stuff, while other kin seem to believe that they really are part something else. And the whole thing gets tied up into gender identity politics, with some people on both sides of the issue saying if we're going to accept non-binary and trans identities, then I guess we also have to accept other kin and their claims. The fact is, though, who really cares? If Joe Berta wants to go around saying she's half unicorn, who does it hurt, really? So, are werewolves real? Not in the sense of people actually transforming physically, obviously, but the mind is a powerful thing, and for some people at least, it seems to be part of their sense of self. Most of the time, those people are harmless. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.